Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. I would like to start out uh, perhaps by getting your reflections on the idea of public monuments, both as a citizen and also as a pastor, because we encounter um, objects in our public spaces, in our churches, in our parks, in museums and elsewhere, both as a... um, as part of our political um, memory, but also as our religious memory. And so I'd love for you to uh, kick it off by just reflecting on on that tension. Yeah, yeah, I'm thankful to be able to have this conversation with you, Alexander. And, and I, I think the, the thing that really stands out to me as a citizen, particularly as a black citizen of this country, um, is the need for honesty. I'm not actually opposed to statues and monuments as an idea. Um, it's a, it's a, I think there are incredible men and women, uh, people who have made incredible contributions to this idea of America, um, the promise of what America can be. And and not only have they made contributions intellectually, they've, you know, some people have shed their blood for it. And some people have, you know, really by the sweat of their brow, um, made this a better place to live. And, and I, and I'm not opposed to those people being honored and us remembering them through monuments and statues. That's, that's not my gripe. I I think what I'm most interested in is again, it's, it's honesty. It's, for us to be honest. And as a pastor, um, we read from a book, we derive purpose and meaning and direction from a book written by people who exhibited a profound level of honesty about who they were and what they did and the mistakes they made. Um, I think about, you know, the fact that we know who Moses was, um, at least our belief is that Moses wrote the, the Pentateuch. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so we know who Moses is and all of his mistakes and the complicated history and the complicated person that he was. By the word of his own mouth, he was able to be honest about the fact that he killed someone and the fact that he struck the rock in disobedience to God's you know, command and, and the fact that he was frustrated as a leader. So the mistakes that he made and even his most beautiful and glorious moments are all chronicled in that complete and nuanced and very complicated history is present um, as we reflect on, on who he was. And, and I think what's, I think most, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of the conversation, but the thing that is perhaps, you know, most um, offensive, about the Confederate monuments that we see in America is the absence of that. I mean, the erasure of them 
of these Confederate generals and soldiers and, and thought leaders, the absence of their really, really the ugly parts of their history, the the really murderous and and villainous parts of who they were is is rarely to never um, really brought up in the conversation about memorializing these people. And as such, those memorials are illegitimate and cannot be trusted and actually do far more harm than any good could come of remembering who they were and, and what they did. That's a key point. I, I like how you're calling us to reflect on the whole person um, and mm-hmm. the one of the many issues with public monuments is that they are a sort of deification of an individual, kind of freezing them in a moment of victory, of glory. It um, comes out of, you know, 19th century ideas about romantic heroes, and um, they really are not actually... One of the criticisms is if you pull down statues, you lose history, but in fact, you're basically losing a sentence. You're basically losing Mm -hmm. them at some... um, key moment. Uh, and, uh, what I like about this, um, kind of this moment is that we're rethinking, um, not just what's in our public spaces, um, and rethinking the, our policies, but we're also, um, unleashing, um, a a kind of act of violence. And that I think makes folks, some folks uncomfortable, can you help us think about this, This, you know, the image of someone pulling down a statue? Of course, lots of, you know, uh, cities are kind of taking it on in a kind of organized way. But the, 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 that's, that kind of scariness to the middle class consciousness of, of something being ripped down um, can be offsetting. I don't think it is. Um, how, how should folks understand it? I think they should think about this um, taking down of a monument in the context of those who were present when the monument was being put up. Yeah, I think the 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 missing link for a lot of people is that they see like, wow, you're tearing this thing down. But I'm not sure if they put a whole lot of thought into what it was like to be there when this was going up. You know, I've shared publicly um, on on my Twitter feed about some of that history um, that goes into specifically Confederate monuments. Uh, and, and it's obviously a Southern thing. We know that the South was, you know, they, they seceded and, and started their the Confederacy and they fought the war, the Civil War, which was largely about states' rights to um, slavery to, to maintain the institution of slavery. Yeah. And so when the war is lost um, and the Union Army occupies the South to, to reconstruct the South, to bring the Union back together, to make sure things are okay, um, Southern former Confederates are absolutely unhappy about that occupation. They are unhappy that the Union Army is there and eventually, you know, it leads to um, the compromise between the South and the North, particularly through President um, Rutherford B. Hayes, that compromise meant that the Union Army would leave the South, 
leaving the former Confederates to kind of put the pieces back together on their own and to enact laws. Those laws became Jim Crow laws um, because a part of that compromise was this explicit um, permission to do to black Americans as they please without interference of the North. This is a really, really important history because as this compromise and this history is taking place, that's when we see, you know, the, the Confederate monuments and Confederate statues being raised up. And they're raised up particularly to say like, hey, like we may have lost that war, but don't get it, black people, don't get any ideas. Nothing's changing for you particularly. Yeah. This is an explicit part of the history. It's propaganda. And, and, and con- absolutely. Of course, it, 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 it recasts the Confederates as victors and as those who were, so, were, were brave and deserving of, uh, you know, monumental accolade, right? Like that's a part of that history explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a black man, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, um, family in Brunswick, Georgia, family in Macon, and Carrollton, and Madison. And, and these are, like, these are places where as you make the trek from uh, urban Atlanta, Georgia into the country, uh, the the sentiments on race become scarier and scarier the deeper into the South you go, right? This is Georgia. I mean, yeah. we, we led the nation in lynchings, okay? So, like, this, there's a, a very serious, deep-rooted um, racism in the state in general, but, but the further you go into the country and the more you're encountering people, there's a, like, equal trend of, of Confederate flags. And of course you see the Confederate monument and it sends a very, very clear message. I'm not sure if people are aware, those who are disturbed by the pulling down of Confederate monuments, I'm not sure that they are aware of how terroristic those monuments um, are to black people today, let alone how, much terrorism they enacted 100 years ago or 120 years ago or even 50 years ago. Um, so I, I, that's a bit of a long answer. But, but my point is to consider what they meant to the onlookers, particularly to black people watching that monument go up as a terrorizing reminder to stay in your place, uh, to know your place, to know that violence will come your way if you try to disrupt our status quo. Um, I think if you put it in that context, I would hope that you see tearing down of, of, of that kind of terrorism as profoundly important. Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you're using the word terrorism there because I think it's a key, an uh, uh, absolute key to connect it to the way that folks think of terrorism, at least post 9-11, which also had this, this kind of objectness, things, you know, coming down, those towers, people uh, being um, in a way afraid in an existential way. Their idea of America itself was fragile, Um uh, in ways that they weren't prepared for. And um, the effect of um, the 
um, Jim Crow laws, it's, I think, a really important connection. And um, to someone who thinks about the visual, I find this really interesting because at the same time that they're erecting these uh, Confederate generals into the sky, um, this is also um, one of the worst periods of lynching. Um, and that also has a terrorizing objectness, um, in addition to being incredibly horrific. And those, those two things where you're erecting white men who have died and you're killing African American men and women and, and celebrating that is, is, is something that is, I think beyond, I mean, it's so evil and so beyond our imagination. I don't think that kind of middle-class white America has ever really uh, wrestled with that reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if in a, you know, in a, in a majority sense they, they have. And, and I think this moment is important because it's an opportunity to, to do so. Um, I think, asking oneself, like, why am I offended that a symbol of terrorism and white supremacy is being taken down? Uh, what make, what history do I think will be forgotten? What is it that I think will, will be lost by the removal of such a symbol? And I love the juxtaposition that you're, that you're drawing here between the hoisting of a, a monument a, and the hoisting of a black body. Uh, they, they are, profoundly interconnected and and very very um i think that visual is is really stunning honestly and and i'd love to to see someone kind of (laughs) any visual artist out there who's able to kind of make that juxtaposition a reality i would love to see that that made because you're absolutely right that they're so so interconnected and 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 mean such similar things um both glorify and denigrate in kind of this really interesting and, and connected way. Yeah. Um, there's an art, uh, visual artist. Um, I don't have the name on the tip of my tongue, but he actually, uh, takes those old pictures and erases, uh, um, everything except the crowd. So they're looking mm-hmm. into this, um, basically vacant space and, and instead of our eye being drawn to this horror that they wanted eyes to be drawn to you're mm. actually looking at the crowd's reaction and looking into those um, old photographs so it's a it's really mm. arresting um what you know we're in this um iconoclastic moment and i would love for you to help us think about the the implications of of this for Adventists. Um, Adventists kind of pride ourselves a little bit in being, you know, non-combatants of, you know, many of our leaders spoke, were abolitionists and, um, you know, we have a incredibly uh, checkered history, but I think we think of ourselves as the remnant and, hey, we're not as bad as the Southern Baptists or something like that. (laughs) Um, And I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a little, you know, your thoughts on, um, you know, where, how can Adventists who, 
who, you know, take very seriously the, the, you know, the Ten Commandments have never, you know, really, um, you know, churches have debated whether to have, you know, even crosses because we come out of that kind of Puritan tradition of being uncomfortable um, towards the, you know, the Catholic uh um, tradition of statues, you know, so we kind of are like, well, you know, hey, we're not as we're not like those people. I'm wondering if if there's ways that you see us um, creating um, monuments, uh, maybe not physical, to some um, problematic parts of uh, American history. Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a, it's a layered question, man. <laughs> it's <a very> layered. <laughs> Give me the truth. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think we we do in in a lot of ways. I I can speak specifically. You know, there's been a really really great conversation, and and shout out to Claudia Allen who wrote this really really yeah. great piece on white Jesus and yeah. the necessity, the the need to to get rid of white Jesus. And and I even made I made a a video that's that's on my uh, on my churches. Um, YouTube page, but also on my Instagram page um, about, you know, that that intersection between the real Jesus and, and, the, and the white Jesus. I, I think starting there, um, I've also shared on Twitter that I pastor a church, a predominantly black church, um, that at one time was actually a predominantly white church and white flight happened when more black people started coming here. But, but that's a different conversation. Well, in my church, there's an image of white Jesus and I am told um, so many times over. I mean, so many of my, both my young adults, even some of my older members are saying like, Hey, that is a distraction for me. Like I'm in the middle of worship and I lift my eyes and I see this image that the history is clear. It was meant to, if nothing else, erase the middle Easternness, if not, um, the Africanness or the blackness of of Jesus, um, and and that is a distraction to me. And I and I and I think that's a, a great place to kind of yeah anchor the conversation because if we understand what white Jesus um, represents, if not at least represented, and perhaps that representation has maybe waned a bit over the years, but but its foundation and, and like what it was built on is something that's deeply dehumanizing. Um, it's an image that co-signs white violence, that co-signs white imperial conquest. Of course, that co-signs colonization, that co-signs the erasure of, of you know, uh, black and brown people's experience and color. And it sits approvingly at the head of that religious, um, you know, Christendom. And, and I think it's important to kind of remove that. And, and I think as a, as kind of the outflow of that, we see monuments, you know, at least not uh, monu I, I, monumental ideas, I suppose, uh, being erected to this white Jesus in the way that we talk about worship and the way that we talk about um, styles and expressions of, of church and, and preaching and mm -hmm. music. We see that all a part of this conversation. Yeah. And, and I think the way it connects in my mind to the Confederate monuments is that um, we 
still see segregation in housing and discrimination in the way that the law is carried out, which, as you, you know, of course, noted, and I think we've had this conversation, it connects to Jim Crow. It connects to the way that black people were treated in the South. And, and we still see many of those outcomes happening to this very day in the South. And so the connection for the church and the relevance for the church is that if we want to be people of the book, the, the people who truly uphold the Sabbath commandment, who believe in the three angels message that says to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, if we want to be that kind of people, those people who come from a tradition of abolitionists and those who are fighting for the rights of the marginalized, we have to examine the way our imagery and the way our history and the way the things that we value for, for a very long time, how are they still perpetuating injustice and discrimination and inequity to this very day within our denominational structure? Just like in our country's structure, we have to ask the question, we're going to be, you know, land of the free and home of the brave. If that's the people that we claim to be as Americans. How are the things that we've valued in the past influencing our values today? How are the things that have had so much influence on who gets access and who's treated with respect? How are those very same groups uh, being uh, denied access and disrespected to this very day? I, I think it's an important conversation to have and an important examination uh, to make. Absolutely. Well, thank you for bringing up that point about white Jesus. Uh, it, it obviously can be a tricky conversation for Adventists, um, at least in America, to have. But I think it's a, essential uh, for Adventists to look again at how those images have been used historically, how they've been used by overt white supremacists, as well as... Um, they're sort of quiet collaborators in the pews. Mm -hmm. And I th there's a um, Frederick Douglass quote from 1878 that it, that in which he says, it is the province of rampant evil to call out the latent good. And I think we're at a moment where folks see horror um, enacted before their eyes by police on video, and it kind of wakes uh, more folks up. And this is where we can um, call them out to see, for them to see, for all of us to see the ways that that um, obvious evil is actually supported by some um, uh, subtle evil that's around us every day that we mm -hmm. take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I've really enjoyed talking with you. I've got a final question for you, and that is, where are you finding hope these days? You're out there ministering. Um, uh, we're in the pandemic. You're active online, and, and I'm going to link a couple of the things that you mentioned in the post so that folks can um, watch those videos. Um, but how are you, uh, you know, it, it can be difficult in moments of kind of social action to, uh, to keep, uh, hope alive. And I'm wondering what's working for you these days. Uh, I'm finding hope in, uh, friends and family, um, 
I'm a part of a, a group of, of black men who are, we, we meet fairly regularly to have discussions and just to kind of debrief, to, to vent without having to explain ourselves. Yeah. And that's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful space. Um, I'm finding hope in seeing uh, legitimate change. I mean, it, it feels as though like ideas that were once too radical to enter the mainstream are picking up steam in ways that I think is really, really beautiful. Talking about reforming um, police and reforming prison and the conversation on equity and social programs in our communities that would bring about, yeah, bring about greater equality. I, I think that that's really beautiful and encouraging. And, um, and I think the, the final place is, is that I'm finding hope in, uh, in learning about uh, the, the, the radical and justice-centered history tradition that is the, the seed is in Adventism. And, and I think that's just so beautiful. Every time yeah. I saw recently Sean Brace put something out there, Dr. Burton down at Southern just, you know, released some information and, and just reading that, that deep well of history where our pioneers really were fighting for justice, imperfect as they were, right? Mm-hmm. They were pushing for justice in ways that is so encouraging. Um, and, and I, and I love it. I absolutely love it. And I'll say this final place, I've been, this final thing, I've, another place where I've been finding some hope is I've actually been reading about restorative justice. Mm, yeah. uh, lately, it's been the lens that I've been approaching, uh, at least this season. I've just kind of read, reading restorative justice material. And, man, I have to say, it is, it is encouraging um, because I think it, it connects so well to the gospel. Uh, I think justice conversations are, are unfortunately led by secular thinkers and they contributed greatly in ways that I've learned so much. Um, but sometimes it, it feels as though there's a, a disconnect in, in language that the lexicon doesn't translate as well, uh, to the church and, and people aren't able to really grasp it and, and get it without more churchy uh, language and restorative justice has just really been, excellent in providing me uh, with some concepts and terms and ideas um, that I think connect really, really well. So those are the places, it's a bit of a hodgepodge, a little bit all over the place, but but those are the places where I'm finding hope, which means I hope you're able to derive from that. I'm finding hope in a lot of different places. And, <laughs> yes. And that's, that's good because there is a lot of despair <laughs> um, out, out there, a lot, to, to, a lot of hopelessness and a lot of frustration. Um, so I'm thankful to God for opening my eyes to several different sources. Uh, yeah. Well, I want to thank you, um, because you're giving me hope and I, um, I'm so glad that you're a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist church and, um, connecting, um, so much of what you believe, uh, to your you know, public presence, so thank you for doing that, and I wish you uh, all the strength um, of our um, of our Lord in uh, in your yeah. continued service. Thanks a lot for Man, s- talking with uh, the Spectrum community today. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Alexander. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I appreciate, you know, I see you on, on social media. I appreciate your voice and, and your perspective. Um, it's very needed, so thank you. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it.